It's ironic that Paul speaks of the failure of the Jews in chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, Israel goes bankrupt, belly up. You know, Romans chapter 9 opened with a list of privileges that God gave to the Hebrew people. But they failed to receive the righteousness in Jesus. Rather than trust in Christ, they relied on their own good works. Self-righteousness rather than God's righteousness. And it caused them to go spiritually bankrupt. A people who were once elected by God were now rejected by God. Yet chapter 11 of all chapters, chapter 11, reveals God's reorganization plan. In the future, all His promises to Israel will be respected. In the end, all the Jews will be saved. We're going to read about it tonight. Romans 11 begins, I say then, has God cast away His people? Now here was the big question on everyone's mind, especially after chapters 9 and 10. Is God through with the Jew? And Paul answers the question with his own credentials. He says, certainly not, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul was Jewish, and yet he was saved. You see, though God put the nation on the bench, salvation was still open to everyone who believes, Jew or Gentile. Paul's argument for God's faithfulness to the Jew is personal, his first argument, but his second argument now is historical. He says, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew, or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life? Now, you recall Elijah's depression. He had stood up to 400 false prophets, but one woman scared him. That wicked old Queen Jezebel, she scared Elijah. He tucked tail and ran. And there on Mount Horeb, he prayed, Woe is me! I'm all alone. I'm the only faithful prophet left. Boy, sometimes we feel that way, don't we? <laughs> like we're the last Christian standing. But Paul here points out that God always has a remnant of believers, even among the Jews. He says, but what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Hey, sometimes it's a skeleton crew, but God always has His people. Don't ever think you've been abandoned. Don't ever think you're the only one. There's more of us than you think. And everybody who belongs to God got that way by grace. We've all been saved by grace. Verse 6, And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. Now here Paul is crystal clear. All believers are saved by grace, not works. And grace is grace. Works are works. Don't confuse the two. Grace and works are like oil and water. They represent two distinct ways of approaching God. Work is what you did. Grace is what Jesus did. And it's grace that unlocks the door to God. Works are what slams it shut. Verse 7, what then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Now notice here, Paul divides the Jewish people into two groups. The believing minority, or as he's called it, the remnant, and the, and the blinded majority. Most of the Jews were blind to the truth. And he explains this blindness. He says, just as it is written, and now he's going to quote from two places, Isaiah 29 and Deuteronomy 29. He says, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. Now here Paul brings up a concept called judicial blindness. And to me, 
This is one of the most frightening doctrines in all of Scripture. You see, natural blindness is the result of being born into sin. But judicial blindness is a specific judgment by God. You see, if you harden your heart over and over and over, God will eventually let you have your way. You know, if you want to sleep, He's going to sing you a lullaby. If you persist in your stubbornness, God will go ahead and let you destroy yourself. It's a judicial blindness. If you choose to be blind, God will see to it that that's what happens. Paul also quotes Psalm 69. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. Notice David prophesied, Let their table become a snare. This reminds me of what occurs every Passover in Jewish homes. The Seder table is full of symbols that are all ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. His body is the hidden matzah. His blood is the cup of redemption. The Jews stare at these symbols. They, they have dinner. They spend hours at this table every year, but they don't see it. They stare at it, but they don't see it. Why? Because blindness has happened to Israel. It's a judgment that has been sent by God. One trip to Israel, we had a tour guide named Amnon. Quite a fella. He was a tank driver in the Yom Kippur War. He had some real chutzpah. And he could tell a joke. Here's the joke he told us. This rabbi, this cabbie, they both die and go to heaven. The cabbie gets in, the rabbi doesn't. And the rabbi wants to know why. This isn't fair. Well, the angel finally tells him, he says, Well, when you preach, you put folks to sleep. When that cab driver drove his cab, he caused his passengers to pray. At night, we would eat dinner with Amnon, and, and we would share with him our love for Jesus. We took, took him to the Old Testament, in fact. And we showed him how it predicted Jesus. We showed him the prophecies. But you know, he never budged. And finally, one night during the tour, I asked Amnon, I said, Amnon, what do you think about Jesus? And his response broke all of our hearts. Amnon looked at us and he said, I don't think about it at all, for I'm not allowed to think about it. And then he went on to explain how that his rabbis taught their constituency that it was a sin to even think or consider the Messianic claims of Jesus of Nazareth. You see, his joke earlier was no joke at all. Today's rabbis are putting the Jewish people to sleep. You know, we've all met people whose unbelief was irrational. All of their honest questions had been answered over and over, and yet they still chose not to believe. They're blinded. It's a spiritual blindness. And the only way to open their eyes is through love and through prayer. Well, verse 11 goes on and says, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? And the answer, certainly not. Recall the old, the old life call commercial where the elderly woman, she falls down on the floor and, and she's in, got this real high-pitched scream and she cries out, I've fallen, but I can't get up. Remember that commercial? Well, the Jews had fallen, but they would get up for... Through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. You see, the Jews rejected Jesus, but God was still reaching out to them. And here Paul introduces another concept, jealousy evangelism. You've probably heard of mass evangelism, and door-to-door evangelism, and street evangelism, and literature evangelism, and lifestyle evangelism, and media evangelism. But God created a new form of evangelism to reach the Jews. Jealousy evangelism. You see, God saved the Gentiles in order to make the Jews jealous and create in them a desire for salvation for themselves. You know, my last two years in high school, I was the starting quarterback for our team. And I started every game except one. I opened my senior season with several bad performances. 
And for the first time in two years, my coach decided to bench me. The next game, I didn't start. But it was really a stroke of genius on his part. For when I finally got into the game toward the end of the first half, I immediately threw a touchdown pass. And I was the starting quarterback for the rest of the season. Apparently, though, my benching was the motivation that I needed. And this was God's strategy for Israel. He had benched the Jews, and he exalted the Gentiles in order to make the Jews jealous of the salvation that had come to, that, was, that was in Christ Jesus. Verse 12 tells us, Now if their fall is riches for the world, and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness... For I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. Understand how much the Jews despised the Gentiles. They considered them kindling for the fires of hell. There's an old joke among the Jews. Why did God create the Gentiles? Answer. Somebody's got to pay retail. Well, Paul plays on this, this animosity. Why should the lowly Gentiles be the recipients of God's blessing while the Jews are on the outside looking in? Paul flaunts the salvation that has come to the uncircumcised. Why? To provoke the Jews to desire Jesus for themselves. There's a scientist in Naples, Florida who has invented a new way of killing mosquitoes. He draws them into a trap with a tantalizing fragrance. You know what it is? You know what fragrance mosquitoes are drawn to? Cow's breath. Can you imagine? Cow's breath. He's invented a synthetic chemical that mimics cow's breath. Mosquitoes love it. And they're drawn in and trapped. Well, hey, we need to affect lost people the way cow's breath affects mosquitoes. Do you live an attractive life? Do you live a life that draws attention, people's attention to Jesus? We should. Is there a bounce in your step? Is there a peace in your heart? We should make people jealous of the love and joy we have in Jesus. He goes on, for if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be? but life from the dead. No, the Jews will one day be saved. For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. The salvation that the Gentiles enjoyed was first offered to the Jews. We're the branches, but they're the root. One day they too will be saved. Verse 17, And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. Notice this, before you came to Christ, you were called a wild thing. Evidently, God's done His research, labeled you correctly. You were a wild thing. You were a wild olive tree, He calls you. The Jews, they were domesticated. They were cultured. They were the natural branches they were planted as seedlings in God's garden. The Gentiles, though, they were wild shoots. They lacked the biblical foundation, the spiritual upbringing. They had to be grafted in. He said, but if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You notice what Paul's worried about. He's worried about reverse discrimination. You see, the Jews were prejudiced against the Gentiles. Now Paul fears that the Gentiles are going to become prejudiced toward the Jews. Let's not forget, he says to the Gentiles, that the Jews brought the world God's word. They brought both the written word and the living word. God's son was a Jew. And that means the Gentiles owe the Jews a debt of gratitude. We should never forget that. How can we be anti-Semitic when God's own son was a Jew? I love this quote. How odd of God to choose the Jew, but not so odd as those who choose the Jewish God and hate the Jew. It's true. As Christians, we need to love and support and pray for and witness 
to our Jewish friends both at home and in Israel. Verse 19 addresses the Gentiles. He says, now you will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Notice the Jews were broken off so that the Gentiles could be saved. Well said. Because of unbelief, they were broken off. And you stand by faith. But do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fail severity, but towards you goodness, if you continue in His goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. In other words, rather than spurn the Jews, we need to learn from the Jews. The Jews failed to persist in their faith. That was their problem. They didn't continue in God's goodness, and therefore God cut them off. And Paul is saying, you Gentiles, don't repeat their mistake. Rather, learn from their mistakes. Don't repeat their mistake lest you suffer their plight. Paul is clear, it's up to us not just to have faith, but to continue in that faith. You see, belief is not a one-time sign on the dotted line proposition. No, you have to continue in your faith. If we expect to be saved, we have to continue to believe. Otherwise, we'll be cut off. Now, recently I read of a woman in Toledo, Ohio, who was found guilty of manslaughter. Says she shot her boyfriend. The article that I read said that it happened when they were arguing over the Bible. Now, it wasn't reported the subject of their argument, but I have no doubt what it was. I'll bet you this couple had been discussing once saved, always saved. Because some of the most violent, vehement, hostile discussions I've ever had with other Christians were over this doctrine of once saved, always saved. And it's really quite a tragedy. Now, I'm going to explain tonight what I believe about once saved, always saved. But before I do, I want to admit that there's good Christians on both sides of the debate. This is not a subject worth dividing over. We can agree to disagree here. But here's my position. It's nothing we do or don't do that earns our salvation. Neither is it anything we do or don't do that forfeits our salvation. The only requirement for salvation is faith. But if salvation is by faith and you renounce your faith, you no longer have faith, how then can you expect to be saved? The point Paul's making here in this text is that you have to continue in your faith. You see, faith is not a date on the calendar. It's an attitude that I grow and that I cultivate. It's not a sign on the bottom line type of deal. Faith is like a plant. It's a living thing. Starve it, and what happens to it? It dies. Feed it, and it lives and ends up bearing fruit. For the record, I don't believe in once saved, always saved. But I do believe in eternal security. For as long as I'm trusting in Jesus, hey, I'm eternally secure. My point is is that I've got to continue in that trust and in that faith. If you want to study this further, there's a host of verses that teach this. Colossians 1, verses 21 through 23. Galatians 5, verses 1 through 5. Hebrews 10, verses 35 to 39. 1 Peter 1, verses 8 and 9. And there are more if you need them. The perseverance of faith is taught throughout the Bible. Well, back to chapter 11, verse 23. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. Now this is good news for the Jews. The Jews didn't continue in faith and they were cut off. But if they turn from their unbelief, they'll be grafted in again. For if you were cut off of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree... How much more will these, who are the natural branches, the Jews, be grafted into their own olive tree? A good horticulturalist will tell you it's far more difficult to graft a wild branch into a vine 
than it is to regraft a natural branch that was broken off. Here God did the hard work of saving the Gentiles. It'll be much easier for him to bring home the Jews. I like the quote by C.S. Lewis on the salvation of the Jews. He explained it this way. In a sense, the converted Jew is the only normal human being in the world. Everyone else is a special case dealt with under emergency conditions. Verse 25. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now notice here he mentions a mystery. And a biblical mystery is a truth that we learn through revelation, not investigation. It's a truth that we wouldn't know unless God had revealed it. This is a mystery. I like to call it a sacred secret. And in the Old Testament, the church, the salvation of the Gentiles, was the mystery. It was hidden from view. God began salvation with the Jews. He'll end salvation with the Jews. But today, we're in that gap. We're in that gap where the Jews have been cut off and God is reaching out and saving the Gentiles. Notice Israel's blindness is temporary. He says, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, God will return His attention to Israel. God will re-engage the Hebrew people. And I believe this expression, the fullness of the Gentiles, refers to a specific number of Gentiles. What he's saying is that when the last Gentile gets saved, at that very moment, the Lord will come back in the clouds and He'll snatch up His church. Hey, let me just say, if you're the last holdout, man, I wish you'd get on with it. You need to get saved tonight because we're looking forward to going to heaven. We're all ready to go home. When the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, God is going to re-engage the Hebrew people. Verses 26 through 32 have prophetic implications. And so all Israel will be saved. Notice when the church is raptured, God will turn His attention to the nation Israel. And He'll use seven years of great tribulation to purify the Jews. As it is written, and here Paul quotes now Isaiah 59, the deliverer will come out of Zion. And he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Every Jew alive when Jesus returns in power and glory will put their faith in him and be saved. At his second coming, after this great tribulation, in that day all Jews will be Jews for Jesus. And Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10 tells us how this is going to happen. There we're told... The Lord says, I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. In other words, when the Jews see the Savior's scars, they'll realize their horrible mistake, that they executed their own Messiah. They'll repent of their sin. And they'll put their trust in the Lord Jesus. In a sense, Thomas is a type of end-time Israel. You remember Thomas? He refused to believe until what? Until he saw the scars in his hands and in his side. Likewise, the scars are what will convince Israel. They'll look on him whom they have pierced. Verse 28, concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Right now, the Jews are working against the gospel. But they have been chosen by God. And they are still the chosen of God. And for the sake of the promises that God made to their fathers, God will fulfill His promises and callings to Israel. For the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. God's promises aren't like a gallon of milk. They don't have an expiration date. Nope. They're not for a limited time only. You can reject God's blessings, but you reject them. God doesn't take them off the table. 
The gifts and callings designated for you are still for you. You can come and receive them if you have faith. He says, For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that He might have mercy on all. He's saying, man, we've all been in God's doghouse, both Jews and Gentiles. None of us should get the big head. If we've received anything from God, if we've become anything for God, it's all because of His incredible mercy toward us. Now, for three chapters, Paul has pounded out some of the most mind-crunching theology in all of the Bible. But he closes this theology with a doxology. He goes from head-scratching to toe-tapping. He goes from pondering to praise. You know, if we could know all there is to know about God with our, pea, with our little pea brains, he wouldn't be much of a God, would he? This is why Paul closes chapter 11 with praise. He says, these are the things we've known, but there's still so much that we don't know. Verse 33 Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. Man, the day you think you've got God wired, you've got the wrong God. His truth is like a river. So simple, in one respect, a child can stand. But so deep, in other respects, that the greatest theologian can drown. The Bible is a reliable record of God's dealings. But if you've got to have every question answered, if you've got to have every little nuance explained before you believe, then you'll never believe. Faith in God requires a certain amount of mystery. There's much that we know, but there's also some things that we don't know and we'll never know until we get to glory. I like this statement. Always remember, what's over our head is still under God's feet. Keep that in mind. It also requires uh, God, this, the knowledge of God also requires a certain amount of humility on our part. We've got to remember it's God who calls the shots, not us. Verse 34 teaches us that God has no colleagues, He has no counselors, and He has no creditors. Notice this. He says, For who has known the mind of the Lord? God has no peers, He has no colleagues. No one who thinks his thoughts, who thinks on the same level, on the same plane. Or who has become his counselor? God doesn't go to anybody for help. Nobody helps and puts his arm around God and gives him advice. Nobody does that. God doesn't need that. Or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? Hey, God owes no one anything. God is no one's debtor. God has no colleagues, He has no counselors, He has no creditors. In other words, God is in a class all by Himself. This might be a problem for the proud, but I want you to know it's a comfort for the humble. I take great joy in that. Notice how the chapter closes. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. God is and should be our all in all. Now, chapter 12 begins. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. For 11 chapters now, Paul has been discussing the mercies of God. And we've really stood in awe of God's salvation, have we not? But after savoring this sweet taste of salvation, it's time now to realize its ramifications. In other words, in light of God's mercies, how then should we live? And here's the first step. That you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Have you done that? Have you presented your body a living sacrifice? You know, the Old Testament sacrifice was a butchered carcass. But God no longer likes his sacrifices well done. Today he orders them rare. He wants a sacrifice that's still alive, that's still kicking and mooing on the plate. God is now into living sacrifices. 
You remember Abraham's son Isaac. He was a living sacrifice. He willingly offered his body to God. He was bound to the altar. He had no plans of his own. He had nothing he had to do, no place he had to go. He was available for whatever the Father had in mind. That's what it means to be a living sacrifice. Once a little girl was sitting at the end of the row at church, and when the offering plate was passed, she took it, she set it down out in the aisle, and then she stood right in the offering plate. Well, the usher didn't quite know what to do. He said, sweetheart, what are you doing? She replied, well, I learned in Sunday school today that I'm supposed to give myself to God. And she's right. In light of all these mercies that God has poured upon us, this great salvation He's given us, our response, the first step, is to give Him our body. Give Him our life as a living sacrifice. And the second step is to renew our minds. Verse 2, and do not be conformed to this world. I like how the Phillips translation puts it. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. It's trying. That's why we need to resist the pressure to follow the pack, to just go with the flow. Always remember, toilet paper goes with the flow, not Christians. We need to stand out, not blend in. You know, a Christian is either a thermometer Or a thermostat. One of the two. You know, some believers are thermometers. They just kind of conform to room temperature. Whatever the room temperature is, that's what they register. They try to be cool. They gravitate toward what's hot. But God wants us to be a thermostat. Rather than just register the temperature, He wants us to set it. Don't conform to the world. Be transformed. He says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. See, here's the key to our transformation. Renewing your mind. Jesus changes our hearts, but we have to change our way of thinking. It's up to me to put on that new identity, to cultivate character that goes with it as I put off the old logic and perceptions and habits to walk worthy of God's mercies We've got to give Him our bodies. We've got to renew our mind. And then we've got to humble our heart. Notice what He says. For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Soberly means to think in one's right mind. The idea here is to be objective. It's to be honest. It's it's not seeing myself as others see me. It's not seeing myself as I see me, but it's learning to see myself as God sees me. This is true humility. And then he says, For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Paul refers to the church as a body. Did you know that if you're an average adult, um, height-wise, weight-wise, this is what your body does every 24 hours. Your heart beats 103,689 times every 24 hours. Your blood travels 168 million miles. You take 23,040 breaths. Every 24 hours, you inhale 438 cubic feet of air. You eat three and a quarter pounds of food. That's the average. You may may do better than that, but that's the average. You drink 2.9 quarts of liquid. You lose seven-eighths of a pound of waste. You move 750 muscles, and you exercise 7 million brain cells. No wonder you feel tired at the end of the day. (laughs) You see, your body is made up of several trillion cells all linked together, functioning as one unit, and so is the body of Christ. You know, if you want to walk worthy of the mercies of God, how do we respond in light of this salvation that we've been given? Well, one of the ways we respond is by getting together, becoming a part of the body, and finding our place in the body of Christ We're many members, Paul says, but we're one body, and we need to be a participant in that body. 
We need to work together for the good of the whole. And then each member contributes to the whole by using the gift that God has given them. Verse 6, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. Upon his death, famous violinist Niccolo Paganini, he donated his instrument to the city of Genoa, Italy. But with one stipulation, that his famous violin never be played. It was only for preservation, not utilization. What a contrast. When Jesus died, he too gave gifts to the church. But with the stipulation, not that they be preserved, but that they be used. The Holy Spirit has imparted to every believer at least one of the gifts that are going to be listed now in these next three verses. You have one of these gifts, at least one, maybe more. And understand, these spiritual gifts, they're not learned skills. They're not natural abilities. They're supernatural enablings. They're gifts from God that God gives to you and gives to me. Jesus gives us these gifts, though, not to sit on the shelf. Once again, He wants us to use them. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 6, points to three types of spiritual enablements or spiritual gifts. Paul speaks of gifts, ministries, activities. I like to call them motivations, ministries, and manifestations. Here's how we divide them. 1 Corinthians 12 lists supernatural manifestations, like speaking in tongues or like gifts of healing. Ephesians 4 lists four different ministries, apostle, prophet, pastor, evangelist, pastor, teacher. While here in Romans chapter 12, we find seven motivations provided by the Holy Spirit. God puts it in the heart of every Christian, at least one specific motivation. It's an implanted spiritual tendency that colors your perspectives and your pursuits. Now, he lists these gifts for us. See which one you have. First is the gift of prophecy. He says, if prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Now, usually when we think of prophecy, we associate it with foretelling the future. But its primary meaning is foretelling. It's speaking a specific word from God to an individual person. It's been said a prophet was not known primarily for his hindsight or his foresight, but his insight. You know, sometimes God gives us a specific word on a subject we're dealing with. It's a gift of prophecy. Here we're told that the person who has this gift should speak boldly the message that God gives him. He should speak in proportion to his faith. Second in this list is ministry. He says, or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. This is the supernatural knack for helping others in practical ways. This is the person who delivers sermons in sweat. He he or she loves to serve in tangible ways. They just have this supernatural gift, just a knack for helping out in tangible ways within the body of Christ. It's the gift of ministry. Third on the list is teaching. He says, he who teaches in teaching. This gift helps earthly minds understand heavenly truths. A teacher is a person who can put the cookies on the bottom shelf, so to speak. They can take complex truths and make them understandable. It's been said a teacher's task is to take a room full of live wires and see to it that they're properly grounded. The fourth gift is exhortation. He says, he who exhorts in exhortation. Teaching instructs us what to do, but exhortation encourages us to do it. This gift is sort of like spiritual jumper cables. It jump starts brothers or sisters with weak batteries. It just provides people the enthusiasm. It's just a, you just feed off of their excitement. It's, you're, they're exhorting you. They're encouraging you to act on what you believe. The fifth gift is giving. And he says, he who has this gift, who gives, do it liberally. Every believer should develop the discipline of giving, of tithing. But the person with the gift of giving just has a supernatural knack for opening up their wallet to bless others and furthering God's work. I'll never forget the guy who came to our church when we first started. And he became famous 
for his $100 handshakes. He, he would take a crisp new $100 bill and he would fold it up and he would stick it in his, the palm of his hand. And when you least expected it, before church, after church, he'd walk up to you and he'd say, hey, God bless you, brother. And he'd shake hands with you and you'd feel that little something in your palm. And then when you pulled it away, you'd realize he'd given you $100. And he did it commonly. I never missed shaking that guy's hand on Sunday morning. You never knew. He had the gift of giving. The sixth gift is leading. It says, he who leads with diligence. We could call this gift spiritual management. It's been said, don't agonize, organize. Here's a person who strategizes in godly ways. 1 Corinthians 14 verse 40 instructs us to do things decently and in order. And this gift is, is one who can organize and who can help us mobilize for service. And then the final motivational gift is mercy. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. I love this definition for mercy. It's two hearts tugging at the same load. We all should show mercy, but the person with this gift exudes an extra helping of mercy. Paul's point is that whatever gift you've been given, make sure that you use it. Of course, people ask, how do I know what gift I've been given? How do I discover my gift? Well, here's a helpful exercise. Let's say a little girl, been in Sunday school, she comes running down the center aisle here carrying a potted plant. She planted this little plant several weeks ago. It's now blossomed and grown, and she's going to give it to Pastor Sandy as a gift. But halfway down the aisle, she trips and she stumbles. And she falls on the floor and her little pot hits the ground and it shatters in a thousand pieces and she's so upset. Well, you see this. In fact, everybody sees this. How would you specifically react to that situation? That's the question. If you'd jump up, if your first impulse would be to jump up and look for a broom, to clean it up, you probably have the gift of service or the gift of ministry. If your first response is to pull out your wallet and say, oh, wait a minute, sweetheart, I'll pay for that, well, then maybe you've got the gift of giving. If you would say to that little girl, sweetheart, let this be a warning to you. Honey, thus saith the Lord, there will be many opportunities in life to stumble. And, and you start to speak God's word to her. That, you probably have the gift of prophecy. If your reaction is to show the little girl a clever foot maneuver so that she won't, be able, she won't slip next time, she'll be able to avoid those falls, well, then maybe you have the gift of teaching. If you think, oh, wait a minute, you know what we need to do? We need to rearrange the chairs in this room and get more organized so this kind of thing won't happen. Well, then maybe you've got the gift of, of leading. Or maybe you'd want to come to her and grab her and say, Oh, honey, you'll do better next time. You know, don't, don't worry about it. Keep trying. You got the gift of exhortation. Or perhaps you'd run up to that little girl and you'd cuddle her close and you'd hug her and you'd say, Oh, baby, let me kiss your little boo-boos. I'm so sorry this happened to you. Well, then you've probably got the gift of mercy. But understand, there would be in this room tonight seven different reactions among the people as to first response to that little girl. And here's the thing. All of those responses are valid. All of them are God-ordained reactions. You see, this is why we need each other, because we need all of these gifts. So many times you have the gift of mercy, and you wonder why everyone else doesn't have that gift. Well, everybody else is not supposed to have that gift. People have different gifts. You have different gifts. And it's the collective whole that brings all these gifts together and properly represents Jesus. A healthy church appreciates its diversity as well as its unity. Well, the rabbis, they had a method of teaching called stringing beads. You know, as a lady would place a bead on a string in order to make a necklace, the rabbis had a way of teaching. They would just string together random truths, random lessons. And this is what Paul does for the rest of chapter 12. He's stringing beads. Verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy. 
Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. I like that. Hate the evil, man. Hold to the good. You know, it always amazes me how accustomed I can get to a putrid odor. You know, I was always the last one to know when Mac had a smelly diaper. The stink was so strong, it would knock a buzzard off a porta potty. That's how strong it was. And it just seems that by the fourth kid, I had become immune to the stench. That always amazed me how I could get immune to that. But by the fourth kid, I did. And I think the same can happen with sin. We can get so used to stuff that God abhors. We allow sin to play on our television screens every night. We approve of what God hates. How can we do that? How can we get used to that? Here Paul is saying, abhor what's evil. Hate the evil. Hold to what's good. And then he says, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence. In other words, don't be lazy. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. Patient in tribulation. Horse racing fans will remember the famed thoroughbred Secretariat. In the Kentucky Derby, a one-mile race, Secretariat clocked a faster time in each successive quarter mile. In other words, the horse got stronger as the race progressed. And this is why God uses tribulation in our lives. Not to wear us out, but to build endurance, to make us stronger through trial after trial we too grow a patient endurance. And then he says, continuing steadfastly in prayer. This is the greatest gift that you can show a friend. Consistent prayer. He said, distributing to the needs of the saints. We need to see and meet needs within the body of Christ. It's been said, love seeks not limits, but outlets. Paul goes on, given to hospitality. A man named John Thomas, he wrote an interesting letter to dear Abby. He said, I'm presently completing the second year of a three-year survey of the hospitality or lack of it in churches. To date, of the 195 churches I visited, I was spoken to by someone other than an official greeter only once. And then it was to ask me to move my feet. How sad is that? I hope one of those 195 churches wasn't Calvary. There's only one thing better than southern hospitality, and that's Christian hospitality. And you and I in our church, we should be high on Christian hospitality. And then he keeps stringing beads. Verse 14, bless those who are persecuted or who persecute you. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. There's an old Chinese proverb that says, if your enemy wrongs you, buy each of his children a drum. That's a funny thought, but we're to march to a different drummer. We're called to bless our enemies. Recall Romans chapter 5, verse 9. You remember that verse? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You remember that? That God took steps to reconcile us even while we were His enemies. And in doing so, He set a precedent. Like God, we too make friends out of enemies by loving them, by reaching out to them. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Boy, when we emphasize, when we empathize and share life together, we grow close to one another. And you know, it's this kind of fellowship that makes for a thick, full, rich life. Sad is the person who lives life alone. It's been said, a sorrow, a sorrow shared is but half a trouble. A joy shared is a joy made double. I love what fellowship means. It, it divides our griefs and it multiplies our happiness. Verse 16, be of the same mind toward one another. In other words, don't play favorites. Don't be biased. Don't, you know, treat certain people special. Treat everybody the same. Love everybody equally. Do not set your mind on high things, <coughs> but associate with the humble. In other words, don't just hang out with the people who make you look good or who occupy the next rung on the social ladder that you happen to be climbing. 
He says, do not be wise in your own opinion. Hey, be rock solid now in your beliefs, in your convictions, but keep your opinions flexible and open to new input. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. Now, this doesn't mean be a sissy. It doesn't mean be a doormat. When men do evil, we should fight back. We should defend ourselves, but we should do so with love. We should fight evil with good. He says, have regard for good things in the sight of men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Now, at times, it might not depend on you. At times, your stand for what's true and right or the other person's stubbornness might make it impossible for you to live at peace. But make sure the problem isn't your unwillingness to forgive or your unwillingness to be flexible or you clutching on to your opinion. No, your opinion is not as important as living peaceably with all men. Verse 19, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. You remember the law of Moses specified an eye for an eye. And why? Because our natural tendency is not an eye for an eye. Our natural tendency is to one-up the person who's harmed us. In other words, you punch me in the jaw, I'm not just going to return the punch. I'm going to punch you in the jaw and kick you in the shins. I'm going to try to do one-up what you've done to me. This is why God is the only person who can be trusted to dish out what's due. He's the one who handles the paybacks. He says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. We need to leave that in God's hands. Here's what we should do. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Now, in ancient times, folks didn't have a pilot light on their furnace. And so if their fire died out in their fireplace, they went next door to retrieve some hot embers to relight their fire. And they would carry it back in a little bowl on top of their heads. Coals of fire on their heads was actually a kindness. Here's the big lesson here. You never win by trying to even the score. We need to fight back. We need to assert ourselves. Don't just sit there and take it. Retaliate, but not with evil. Fight evil with good. You see, if you retaliate in like kind, if you fight evil with evil, you're no better than your enemy. We need to take heed to verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And there we have Romans chapter 12.